Father, we come before You humbly, seeking to hear Your voice this morning. That in this sacred time of worship, we would meet with You in a special way. That we would experience the closest thing to glory that we will experience this side of death. That it might be a taste of what heaven will be like eventually when we gather together at your throne with all the saints throughout all the ages. We pray now as we're gathered that you would bless this time and that you'd bless your word preached and that you'd speak to us this morning in a way where we would know you more. We pray that you would correct us where we need correction. You would instruct us where we need instruction. We pray that we'd see Christ in the text today. And so as we begin looking at your moral law, your Ten Commandments, that you'd show us Christ in them and that we would have a new and rekindered desire to obey your law and to run to Christ when we fail to keep it knowing that He has kept it perfectly for us. So again, we pray that You would be with us now and speak to us through Your Word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 17. So, the last time uh, that I had the privilege to preach, we concluded our series on the ordinary means of grace. So, we'll be uh, beginning a new series this morning uh, where we'll look at each of the Ten Commandments. But before we jump right into the first commandment, I felt the need to give kind of an introduction to the Ten Commandments, kind of an overview. Uh, to kind of lay the foundation for the study. And I want to apologize in advance. There's a little bit more information than would warrant one sermon, but not enough for two, so we're going to be kind of moving quick through these things. But um, nevertheless, I think these uh, things are important to look at. So this morning, uh, we focused on three main issues uh, surrounding the law. And I'll be referencing a lot of passages this morning. Um, and so I, we've included an outline in the back of your um, bulletin. So if you'd like to follow along with the Scripture passages, you can do so, but don't feel obligated to do that. If you don't wish to, I'll be reading each of the passages as they come up. So the three main uh, points this morning uh, will be the law summarized, the law understood, and the law applied. So those will be our three topics this morning. And so for the sake of clarity, I want to define my terms right away from the outset. Uh, I'll be using the word law synonymously with the Ten Commandments. Um, I don't mean every law that we see in Scripture. That's not what I mean when I say law. Um, The law in Scriptures are, are often divided into three categories. Uh, the first is the moral law, 
which is what we'll be looking at this study, is the Ten Commandments. The second category is the civil law, or the judicial law, which is the laws that were given uh, in the theocratic nation of Israel. And the third category is the ceremonial law, which were the laws given uh, in the Old Covenant having to do with worship, such as the sacrifices and the feasts. But as our confession and all other Reformed confessions affirm, uh, the civil law has expired when the original nation of Israel ceased to exist, and the ceremonial law has been done away with uh, at the advent of Christ because he was the fulfillment of all the things that those laws were shadowing and pointing to. So the civil law and the ceremonial law are no longer in effect today. So that leaves us today with just the moral law or the Ten Commandments. And so the aim of this series will be to uh, study how we should understand each of these commandments, uh, but also how we should be relating to the law in general as Christians. Uh, are we bound to keep the law? Are we under the law? Uh, does the law have power? Does it have more than one purpose? Do we understand it? How do we apply it? Right? These are all questions that I hope to answer this morning um, in our introduction. So, let us begin uh, by answering some of these important questions. The first part of our study this morning will be the law summarized, as I mentioned before, the law summarized. So, we need to first define what we're talking about when we're talking about the law or the Ten Commandments. What is the aim or the heart of these commandments? I want to briefly read a passage from Matthew 22, where Jesus himself summarizes the law for us. Uh, The context is after the Sadducees had failed to trap Uh, Jesus in a contradiction, the Pharisees next tried to trick Jesus into emphasizing one law over the other laws, which would nullify the importance of the other ones. And so, in that context, we read this in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So, Jesus summarizes the Ten Commandments into two overarching commands, which is to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. But when Jesus tells us to love God, a very reasonable question to ask would be, how? The same could be asked of the commandment to love our neighbor. How should I do this? Are the commands to love God and love neighbor just ambiguous expressions? Who gets to decide how we love God? Who gets to decide how we love our neighbor? Do we? Does our neighbor? Turn back with me, if you had turned to Matthew, to uh, Exodus 20, where we'll see that it is God that defines how we must love him and love our neighbor. Look with me at Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 11. Here we'll find the first four of the Ten Commandments. We read, 
Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers of the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it, You shall do no work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So notice the center focus of the first four commandments. It's God. God is the focus of the first four. Um, Each of these four commandments deal with our duty toward God. And they each answer a question about our worship of God. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. This is the who of our worship. We're only permitted to worship the one true God. The second commandment, have no graven images. This is the what of worship. What do we use to worship? And God rules out the use of any images in his worship. The third commandment is to not take the Lord's name in vain. This is the how of worship. It defines what manner in which we should worship, right? It tells us how our worship should be serious and reverent. And the fourth commandment, to keep the Sabbath holy, this is the when of worship. When does God require worship? In the Old Covenant, this was Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, but in the the New Covenant, we have the Lord's Day, Sunday. So, the when. So, in these four commandments, we see the question answered of how we should love God. God has already defined it for us. When Jesus said this, it had already been defined how we're to love God. We love God by keeping the first four commandments. And this is what is referred to as the first table of the law. So the first four commandments is the first table of the law. Now moving forward to the latter six commandments, we'll see the question answered of how we should love our neighbor. So let's read uh, verses 12 through 17. In Exodus 20, 12 through 17. We read, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor shall you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs To your neighbor. So, 
So again, these latter six commandments summarize for us how we should love our neighbor. And this is what is called the second table of the law. It deals with our duty toward our neighbor. So the first table is our duty towards God, and the second table is our duty towards our neighbor. Now with this understanding of the structure of the commandments, I want to briefly look at how Scripture teaches us to understand them fully. And so we're going to move to our next part of the study, which is the law understood. Law understood. Um, In Scripture, (coughs) we see the Pharisees, kind of in general, as well as the rich young ruler specifically, uh, thinking that by keeping the law outwardly, or put differently, by keeping the letter of the law, they were righteous. Is this true? Some of you, uh, especially those who have been involved in our preaching labs, are familiar with the word hermeneutics. But for those that aren't, it's just a fancy word that is used to describe a method of interpretation. Hermeneutics are simply the tools we use to arrive at the meaning of a text. And so when it comes to the interpretation of the Ten Commandments specifically, Jesus actually gives us a hermeneutic to follow. Look with me at Matthew chapter 5 briefly, where we'll gain insight into interpreting the law correctly. Matthew 5 and verse 21 and 22, we read this. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So here... Jesus shows us that simply refraining from the physical act of murder is not keeping the law. He reveals that even if you speak hatefully towards your brother, you're guilty of violating the sixth commandment. And you're guilty of violating it without so much as putting a finger on anyone. This demonstrates a hermeneutic that's critical for understanding the Ten Commandments. Because behind the letter or the face value of each commandment, there's an underlying principle that is to govern our ethics. If you look back at Matthew 5, we see Jesus again demonstrate this hermeneutic. In verses 27 and 28, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, we see that simply avoiding the physical act of adultery does not mean that you're keeping the commandment. Even to look at a woman who is not your wife renders you guilty of violating the seventh commandment. So, there's a principle or a spirit behind each of these commandments that's more broad and requires much more from us. It's not enough to simply avoid the act of murder. It's not enough to simply avoid the act of adultery. That's not keeping the law. God requires a 
a perfect love and preservation of life in the sixth commandment. And God requires perfect marital faithfulness in the seventh commandment. Right? These requirements these requirements are simply represented in the commandments. Consider the 46th question and answer of Keech's Baptist Catechism where we see this uh, demonstrated. Uh, the question is, where is the moral law summarily comprehended? <coughs> Excuse me. Answer, the moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. So the moral law of God is summarized in the Ten Commandments, but a true fulfillment is, a, is deeper than just keeping the summary, right? So to answer the question that I posited before, the Pharisees, as well as the rich young ruler, were not righteous by simply keeping the letter of the commandments. Because there are deeper principles behind each of these commandments. And so this hermeneutic that Jesus gives us will be crucial as we move forward and look at each of these commandments. Next, we'll look at perhaps the most relevant portion of our sermon this morning, which is the law applied. While understanding the divisions between the first and second tables are helpful, and applying Jesus' hermeneutic of the law is essential to understanding it, there's one more question that needs to be answered before we can have any meaningful study on the Ten Commandments. And the question is, how does the law apply? Is the law for all people? Is it just for Christians? Can we truly keep it? Does it earn us righteousness? Was it just for the Israelites? Right? All these questions and more stem from the broader question of how does the law apply? John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, helpfully highlights the three ways that Scripture teaches us the law is applied. These are sometimes referred to as the revelatory use, the civil use, and the sanctifying use. And so perhaps a helpful picture for each of these uses would be the first use is a mirror, the second use is a bridle, the third use is a light. And so we'll spend the rest of our time this morning examining each of these uses from Scripture. So let's begin by looking at the first use. The revelatory use or the use of the law as a mirror. I'll be reading quite a few texts <laughs> in the remainder of our time, so don't feel like you need to turn each time but you can do so if you wish. So, the first use of the law is to reveal our sin and our need for a Savior. Consider Romans 3.20, where we read, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. How would anyone know they're guilty without a standard to measure themselves by. The law serves that purpose. Again, in Romans 4.15 we read, The law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. So the law provides us with the reality of our violation of the moral duty God requires from us. And perhaps the most explicit 
text is found in Galatians chapter 3. Here Paul is <clears throat> explaining how the giving of the law did not nullify the promise made beforehand to Abraham. In verses 19 through 24, we read this Galatians 3 19 through 24. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through the angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness indeed would have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become a tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. So, the law has rendered every person guilty in a need of salvation. This is Paul's argument throughout the whole passage. The law does not nullify the promise of the gospel. Rather, it reveals our need for it. But the real benefit that this passage gives us is a word picture to help explain this concept. If you'll notice in verse 24, Paul says, The law has become a tutor to lead us to Christ. Unfortunately, while tutor is or seems to be the best word to use in an English translation, it fails to communicate Paul's intended meaning. We think of a tutor as someone who helps with schoolwork, especially with children that are in need of extra help with certain subjects. But this word, however, meant something different in the first century. Uh, Pedagogos is the Greek word. It's here translated as tutor. Was a servant, <clears throat> a special servant, who would be assigned with the task of accompanying children to and from school. And the main job of this servant was to ensure the protection of the children from any danger, which would include dangerous animals as well as people. They would also know the various routes uh, to and from school so the children would not get lost on their way. They would make it to and from school safely. And this is the word picture that Paul gives us in reference to the relationship between the law and the gospel. They're indeed very distinct things. We want to maintain a separation between the law and the gospel because they are different things. But they're both instrumental in our coming to Christ. They both serve a purpose. In the same way that this servant would bring the children to and from school safely, so the law brings us to Christ. The law holds up a mirror to us to show us our sinfulness, which in turn leads us to look, inside, look outside rather, of ourselves for salvation. It shows us that we need salvation. We need a Savior. And so it leads us to the cross. It leads us to Christ. So that is the first use of the law. 
It reveals our need for Christ. It is used as a mirror. Now, the second use uh, is the civil use or the law's use as a bridle. John Calvin helpfully writes this in his Institutes regarding the second uh, use, the civil use. He says, The second office of the law is, by means of its fearful denunciation and the consequent dread of punishment, to curb those who, unless forced, have no regard for rectitude and justice. Such persons are curbed not because their mind is inwardly moved and affected, but because, as if a bridle were laid on them, they refrain their hands from external acts and internally check the depravity which would otherwise burst forth. It is true, they are not on this account either better or more righteous in the sight of God. For although restrained by terror or shame, they dare not proceed to what their mind has conceived, nor give full license to their raging lusts. Their heart is by no means trained to fear and obedience. Nay, the more they restrain themselves, the more they are inflamed, and the more they rage and boil, prepared for any act or outbreak whatsoever, were it not for the terror of the law. So, succinctly put, through fear of consequences, evil people are kept from doing evil deeds. It does not change them inwardly. Only the gospel can do that. The law has no power to do that. But it does make them refrain from committing acts that they would otherwise commit were it not for the fear of punishment. Let's look at a few scriptures that demonstrate this. The first comes from Deuteronomy 13, uh, verses 6 through 11. We read this. If your brother... Your mother's son, or your son or daughter, or the wife you cherish, or your friend who is as your own soul, entice you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, whom neither you nor your fathers have known, of the gods of the people who are around you, near you or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other end, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, and your eyes shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him. But you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall stone him to death because he has sought to seduce you from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid, and will never again do such a wicked thing among you. So, aside from the glaring point made about how serious God takes the sin of idolatry, we must notice a few things with respect to the second use of the law here. The first is that God instructs the people of Israel to enforce the law. There was to be a punishment that was attached to the commandment. And for the sin of idolatry at that time, the punishment was death. The second thing to notice is that God instructed them to make this punishment public. And there's a specific reason, and that reason is to cause fear in the people. Now, lest we fall victim to the lie that this method is unjust or cruel, 
Let's remember the state of man without God. The Scripture tells us that the heart of man is desperately wicked. Not just wicked, desperately wicked. We as sinners long to act out the evil desires of our hearts by nature. And for many people, fear is the only restraint that they have from committing horrible crimes. And did we not see this firsthand in Seattle during the pandemic when the protesters were permitted to take over six city blocks, including a police precinct with no consequence? Chaz was what they named it, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. They freed themselves from the local authorities and became autonomous. And the word autonomy means self-law. And what resulted from this autonomy? Four shootings, two deaths, arson, and several sexual assaults. And so immediately, it didn't even take time, immediately once the threat of punishment was removed, people began to act out lawlessly. And so this is why God prescribes fear of punishment as a deterrent. We can look at one more text in Deuteronomy <clears throat> to see this point proven further. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 16, we read this. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men will have the dispute uh, sh- shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, who will be in the office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. The rest will hear and be afraid, and will never again do such evil thing among you. Thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So again, we see that if a person in Israel was caught bringing a false accusation against another, which is breaking the ninth commandment, his punishment was to be whatever he wanted to have done to his brother. And again, notice the result here. It says, thus you shall purge the evil from among you. How will that happen? Text tells us, the rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. The fear of punishment will result in a decrease in this crime. It doesn't totally eradicate it. We know this because Scripture prescribes how to punish these crimes, which assumes that they'll happen. But the fear of punishment will indeed lower the amount of times these acts are committed. And I anticipate that some might argue that this fear of punishment was only used in the theocratic nation of Israel. So I have one more text for you to demonstrate this. In Romans chapter 13, Paul is writing to the church in Rome in the New Covenant under a Roman government that was not friendly towards Christians. So it's almost diametrically opposite to the theocratic nation of Israel. And it's in this context that Paul writes this in verses 3 and 4. 
He says, Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So, even under the New Covenant, in unbelieving systems of government, the civil authorities dissuade people from doing evil through the fear of the sword. And so you may ask what the Ten Commandments have to do with unbelieving governments run by those who hate God. And that's a fair question. The leaders of most, if not all, governments do not open up Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 6 in order to implement their laws. So how can the Ten Commandments truly have a civil use? The answer is that the Ten Commandments, originally written on stone and afterward written in Scripture, also have been written on man's heart. All men, even unbelievers. Romans 2, 12-15 says this, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts uh, alternately accusing them or else defending them. So, every human being knows by their very nature, as an image bearer of God, what they ought to do. The law of their Creator is rooted in their conscience. And the more closely the laws of the land reflect the law written in their hearts, the better the nation will be, at least externally. But, again, the main point here that I'm trying to make with the civil use is that fear attached to the consequences, or fear of consequences that are attached to applications of the moral law in our societies restrains people from acting out the evil desires of their hearts. That's the second use of the law. The civil use or the use of the law as a bridle to rein in evil. Now, <clears throat> moving, moving on to our third point, let's look at the third use of the law or the use of the law as a light. Now, the third use of the law is perhaps the most important for us here in our context to understand uh, as it's the way that we as present Christians should relate to the law. Uh, We've seen the law is a tool to uh, lead us to the gospel, to show us our need for Christ, and that the law restrains evil outwardly in our societies. But is that the end of it? Is that the full extent of the Christian's relationship with the law? Let's begin by looking at a few passages to help us answer this question. Let's start <coughs> excuse me, uh, by clearing up a misconception uh, among Christians. This stems from Romans chapter 6, um, verses 14 and 16. We read this. <coughs> 
For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? And in the next chapter, Romans 7, we read this in verse 4 and 6. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to one another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we, we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. So we see here in these two, in these two passages, Paul tells us that we are not under the law, that we have died to the law, and that we've been released from the law. And these statements are all true. But we must understand them correctly. We must understand them in light of the rest of Scripture. So how exactly have we been released from the law? Does it no longer have any bearing on our actions? Is it a list of must-dos in order to be saved? Both of these are wrong. And let's see why. What else does the Scriptures tell us about Christians' relationship to the law? In the Great Commission in Matthew 28, <clears throat> Jesus instructs the disciples to make disciples and then to teach these new disciples to obey all the things that He commanded them. That sounds like law. In John fourteen fifteen, Jesus says, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. So both of these things are true here. We have been released from the law and are no longer under it, yet Jesus clearly teaches us that we must still obey the law. And that's because the way in which we've been released from the law is as a covenant of works. The law is no longer a weighty burden of perfection that we must carry. It's no longer an impossibly large mountain that we must climb in order to reach God. Rather, it is a path of righteousness that we use to follow the God who has fulfilled the law for us. Perhaps a helpful analogy is that the law is no longer a ladder to heaven, impossible for any man to climb. It's rather a path on which we imperfectly, and I need to emphasize that, follow Christ who climbed the ladder for us. We're not bound to fulfill the law uh, to earn something from God. Rather, Christ has earned everything for us, and as a result of that, we seek to obey the law out of love for Christ. Consider a few passages that support this. In Galatians two fifteen and 16, we read, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we, <clears throat> even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. 
Justification and righteousness do not come from the law. They can't come from the law. Rather, they come from faith. But look at the result of this justification coming through faith. In verses 19 and 20, following that passage, we read this. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so the result of being justified through faith in Christ is to live a life of faithful obedience to him. It results in not living for oneself, but for the glory of God. Lastly, to further demonstrate this third use, is the reality of our conforming into the image of Christ. In Romans 8.29, we read this. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So let me ask you this. Knowing that Christ <clears throat> lived a sinless life uh, of faithful obedience uh, and complete and total obedience to the law, what would it look like for a person to be conformed into his image? It'd be further obedience to the law. After we believe in Christ and are justified, we begin to be sanctified and to live more and more like Christ. And so as we begin to live more and more like the one who perfectly kept the law, we ourselves will be keeping the law more and more as we continue to live more and more like him. And again, I need to emphasize this, imperfectly. (laughs) So by being conformed into the one who perfectly fulfilled the law, we ourselves will um, be keeping the law more and more. And so, in summary of the third use, we are not under the law as a means of earning righteousness before God, but we are obligated to keep it as a path of Christ-likeness in our service and devotion to God. We keep the law as ones who have received a gift and desire to live like the giver of that gift. Keeping the law does not, cannot, earn us good standing before God. But it does give us a road map for what a holy life lived unto God should look like. And although we will fail again and again and again, we know that we have already been given a perfect righteousness from Christ that no amount of failure could ever nullify. So, summary this morning. We have seen that the law or the Ten Commandments are summarized into love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. These represented the first and the second table of the law. We also saw that Jesus 
demonstrated for us how there is an underlying principle behind the letter of the commandments that give us a deeper understanding into God's perfect standard for us. And lastly, we saw that the law has a threefold use. The first is to show us our sinfulness and to lead us to Christ just as a tutor would lead the children to school. The second use is to restrain evil in our societies as all men, Christian or not, have the law written on their hearts and use that to implement uh, our civil laws with the threat of punishment. And the third use is the use for Christians as a light to our path of living righteously before God for His glory because He has perfectly kept the law for us. And so, my prayer this morning and continually as we pursue this study is that we would see Christ in each of these commandments. That we would see the full extent of Christ's obedience for us. And that in response to seeing that, we would live lives devoted to keeping the law. Not as a covenant of works to earn righteousness, but as a grateful response toward the one who gave us his own perfect righteousness, namely Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us the commandments. We thank you for not leaving us to our own creativity to please you, but showing us exactly what you require of us and teaching us how to love you rightly and how to love our neighbor as ourselves. We thank you that in giving these commandments, you knew that we could never keep them on our own and that we would fail again and again and again. And in seeing that, you sent your Son to keep the law fully, both the Spirit and the letter, perfectly for us. So that as we constantly fall and fail, in our pursuit to obey you. We have a faithful high priest who intercedes for us, who we can approach, who stands ready to forgive us. We pray that you would reveal Christ to us in these commandments. Show us the extent of his obedience for us. Show us our need for him. We pray that you would give us and our leaders the desire to implement laws with punishments attached to them that would restrain evil. And we pray that you would teach us your law more fully so that we could use it as a light and a path to follow Christ and to live a life that's devoted to you and your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.